Hey caffeinators, welcome to the Vet Tech Cafe. The Vet Tech Cafe is a podcast centered around veterinary technicians and nurses, hosted by myself, Dave Cowan, and my good friend, Jeff Backus. We strive to discuss current issues facing our profession and give our colleagues a voice and a medium to enter into these discussions. Our guests are experts in the veterinary field that we hope can help our listeners work towards dealing with these issues, as well as coming up with solutions that can lead to change. If you have a question, comment, or would like to be a guest on the Vet Tech Cafe, please contact us at vettechcafe at gmail.com, or you can find us at our website, vettechcafe.com. One thing we would ask of you, our listeners, is to rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. We're not exactly sure how or why this helps us, but apparently it does. So without further ado, come on in, grab yourself a cup of coffee, and get ready for another episode of the Vet Tech Cafe. Welcome back to another episode of the Vet Tech Cafe, where no, for the last time, we have not seen your lost pair of bandage scissors or your lost <laughs> shaker of salt, as it were. Um, we'd like to thank all of uh, our caffeinators for continuing to support us and helping us out through Patreon and checking out our website. Um, if you haven't already, um, you know, like us on whatever podcast platform you hear us on and subscribe to us. Um, we're again, we're not really sure how that helps, but apparently it does. So um, <laughs> somehow, thank you, somehow, thank you for your continued support. If you're new, um, we get messages all the time from people that are just finding us. So thank you so much for uh, for tuning in. Head over to vettechcafe.com. Um, you can learn about Dave and I, and and uh, there's links to all of our cool stuff, our merchandise, all that. So definitely check us out there. Dave, how's things going out there? Anything new? Uh, other than the audio issues that we've been having for the last, <laughs> since I got my new laptop, no, nothing, nothing too crazy. Um, I'm coming up on July and I was, I was planning on taking it easy in July and, and working less. And then I just found out this week that one of the hospitals I work at is going to need someone Monday through Thursday. So Ooh. I'm trying to limit and only doing a couple days a week. So my my, my month off of July is, is not going to be a month off, but I'm definitely going to tone it back because I, I, I need I need a little bit of a break, yeah. but it it's going. It's good. it's going good. How are you how are you guys doing? Everything uh, going good? Yeah, we're good. You keep working on those boundaries. Um Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. Uh Daphne had her uh, two month or eight week appointment yesterday, got all of her vaccines. So she slept great all day yesterday and is still asleep today. So it's kind of wonderful. <laughs> you got a, got a rabies and her distemper shot and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah. So. Distemper, parvo, corona and yeah, feline yeah. and feline leukemia. Yeah. She got them all. Uh, and the, and but yeah. Cough in case she, yeah. in case she goes to daycare or something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but otherwise we're doing good. Um, it's been hot and uh, we had to cancel one recording this week because I had no air conditioning and yeah. they were banging around on the roof, but we finally got that fixed. So, you know, just, just life life's yeah life in the big good, city good, i good. guess so and, yeah. and we are we are planning to meet up uh, yes next month in austin uh yeah. when i'm doing some uh recover training and you're going to come out and hang out with me for a little bit exactly yeah. what do we say 23 hours and 55 minutes you'll, yep. you'll be there yep. that's how long i'll be there that'll so. be fun yeah, yeah for sure we'll for to, sure we'll, we'll, get... we'll have to do something live <laughs> yeah for sure and uh we'll get to do some little business meeting and all that fun stuff so yeah, yeah. that'll be that'll be super great so um yeah sometime i guess it's late or mid to late august so yeah really looking mm -hmm. forward to that so um we have another awesome episode today we've had actually a few requests people have sent in for uh an episode such as this and it's going to be 
kind of another personal episode, if you will. But uh, but I think it's going to be a really good one, and I think a lot of people are 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 going to be able to to relate to it. We have Danny Provost coming by the Vet Tech Cafe today. She was in our study group, Dave. We've known her for ten. Gosh, is ten, it 10, 10, 11, 10, 11 years, years now, now yeah. already? Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a CBT and a veterinary technician specialist in emergency and critical care with 27 years of experience in veterinary medicine across various veterinary disciplines. Just like us, she was, like I said, in our study group, got her VTS and ECC in 2013. For the last several years, training and education has been her focus. If you go to IVEX, she does a lot of the DVM training specialty lab. She does a lot of recover stuff, um, a lot of really, really cool stuff she's a part of. And cultivating technician empowerment and motivation through hands-on training as, uh, as well as providing multimodal educational tools and support. It's kind of her wheelhouse. Danny, thank you so much for coming by the Vet Tech Cafe today. We appreciate the time. We appreciate your patience while we try to figure out <laughs> some of the audio <laughs> stuff today. But if you haven't already, what can we get you for a cup of coffee? I like uh, my coffee straight up black. Yes. Yes. Nice. That's exactly what I have. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Well, if you don't mind, take us through your career path. Sounds like you've been doing this. I think I'm in my 27th year as well. So as long as we have, like, what got you into it, some stops along the way, what you're doing now, and then we'll kind of jump off from there. Yeah, sure. So like many kids, I knew that I wanted to work in vet med from a very young age. I think I was about five or six, honestly. And I think it's largely because I grew up in a big family and we always had dozens of pets and that's no exaggeration. So I was responsible for a lot of the husbandry of all of our pets. And I realized that you can actually have a career in this. I had a very brief moment where I thought I was going to be a poet Um, and my parents said, that's probably not going to pay your bills. Um, so although this career doesn't necessarily pay them either, it's probably the better option, but I, uh, have always had a love for vet med and helping people as well. So I started out in GP in high school and then straight from high school, went to a four year vet tech program outside of Boston. And that really opened my eyes to the different possibilities for our career and all the different things we could do. I had the opportunity to work in wildlife medicine for a bit, biomedical research, zoo medicine, and then GP and emergency. So as the years went on and I felt like I was kind of reaching the peak in general practice, I recognized that I was getting very excited when emergencies would come in, (laughs) even though now I know they weren't true emergencies. Back then, it was still super exciting to have something other than vaccines. And so I kind of threw myself into emergency, being absolutely petrified, thinking I would not be good enough to, to work in emergency medicine because I had watched so many people have to think on their feet quickly and make decisions and the doctor wasn't always around. Little did I know that there are so many steps to how helpful you can be starting out as a CSR, you know, an assistant, and then moving through being a technician and so forth. So yeah, genuinely found my love for emergency and critical care and decided that was the route I was going to take for the rest of my career path at that time throughout probably the past 15, 16 years. And I was called down to NC State to um, work at NC State University in the emergency department. And I recognized rather quickly there that 
I would be teaching students and I would have interns all to myself. <laughs> and I kind of uh, needed to know what was going on. And I wanted to make sure that I was giving them correct information. I felt a strong sense of responsibility to make sure that I was learning the newest state-of-the-art techniques for things and that I was sharing you know, information as it, it needed to trickle down to the doctors and students. So that's when I decided to um, embark on the VTS journey. What a journey that was, um, <laughs> as you gentlemen know. It, it still um, continues to be. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, the thought of the exam still puts fear in my heart. But throughout that process, it made me gain a new sense of respect for people who've been in the profession for a long time. And I've learned that changing things up a little bit is what seems to keep people in this profession and not only keep them in it, but keep them loving it. Being in this for over 25 years in general is one thing, but being able to wake up every day and say, I'm so grateful that I'm still in this. Um, I think that's sort of a rarity nowadays, considering most techs are lasting five to eight years in this field. So. So yeah, I, I moved through the emergency and critical care uh, certification and, you know, like you said, diving into teaching CPR, emergency procedures. I've been so fortunate to work alongside some amazing people and just kind of recognizing that the role of the technician has expanded so much over 27 years. And so today, teaching, educating uh, working on training and uh, lecturing and so forth, and kind of spreading the word and sharing my personal experiences on platforms such as this. Awesome. You mentioned in there the exam. Well, when you said that, I just realized, <laughs> I, I think next year we have to recertify again. Or, we do. Or, we have to recertify yes. again. Uh, yes. Yes. Renew or whatever. I forget the, the term escapes me, but yeah, that's already due next year again. At least we don't have to take the exam again. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> man. Yeah, I, I I remember there was there was someone in our study group who was afraid to do the. Remember the they would have us rate the exam where we'd go in and look at the questions and mm -hmm. say, you know, is this a fair question or not a fair question? And I forget who it was, but she she said, I don't want to do that because I don't want them to find out that I I got lucky and. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I, when she said that, I felt the same way. And, and then I was like, oh, crap, do they actually look at that? And, <laughs> Are they going to look at our scores again? Yeah. <laughs> take it, take it back. It. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but they... Thankfully, they don't do that. No, um, no, no. Oof, I mean, some of the questions that are on there now, I, I, I think even in the, what has it been, nine, almost 10 years since we took the exam last, mm -hmm. I bet you those questions have changed quite a bit. And there's probably stuff on there that we didn't even study. Yeah. Sure. I, I, you know, honestly, though, I would hope so. I mean, that's the goal. Uh, yeah, right? that's true. It's yeah. just evolution. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. For sure. Yeah. Uh, so, Danny, as, as someone who's been what we call what we like to call ourselves a vintage tech mm -hmm. uh, who's been mm -hmm. around for a number of years and worked in many different things, different places and different types of uh, practices and different type of roles. Uh, where do you see the veterinary tech technician profession right now? Like, are there things that we need to work on? Are there things that we're not even addressing that we need to, to work on? Or is it just all great and there's nothing else we need to do? <laughs> oh. mm, that'd be great. Um, no, I think that some of the things that I have seen, especially training new uh, technicians, is the vet tech program 
profile and what uh, the classes look like and what we are requiring of students that perhaps isn't necessary and those things in the curriculums that haven't been added that should be. I know I went to school forever ago, but when I think about the classes that I actually had, there were probably, I could have knocked an entire year off if I didn't have to take certain classes that I never used again. So I think it would be beneficial to our profession to sort of create career tracks for vet tech programs so that there's not you know, a couple of semesters devoted to large animal medicine, if that's something you know in your heart that you don't want to do, but also adding in new and current things like emergency medicine and CPR training. You know, I'm fortunate to live close to a vet tech program, and I'm asked to come in and talk to the students about gaining your VTS and, you know, doing the full CPR training with them. But I know that not all vet tech programs are like that. And as we get new students in, sometimes it's shocking the things that weren't covered, but, you know, the students are always kind of scrambling to tell me all the things that they do know. And while that's great, it, it doesn't typically pertain to what I'm trying to train them on um, more often than not. So I think as an umbrella, sort of as a grouping, looking at the tech programs in general, something else that I think that we need to do is establish that we are on the same playing field as the doctors at this point. And so as we gain more respect in our profession, as there are more guidelines and more, I would say, like strict policies or those that we have to adhere to, as we move forward and have more responsibility um, and need to be trusted um, with certain patient care, I think that we need to open up everybody to either having a mentor when you start out at a new hospital or attending nursing rounds or doctor rounds um, so that we can all get on the same page since we have new responsibilities that are being added to us on a regular basis. And that's honestly, I think what would keep us in the profession um, is knowing that there's not just like a glass ceiling, there's no limit to what we can do hopefully in the future. Sure. I, I thought that too, when, when I was, you know, studying for the VTE and annoyed that I had to learn like about pigs and, and horses where yeah. I was like, I'm never going to be dealing with these. Um, I've often thought that there should be separate tracks like that. Cause I, I mean, even as a, a teacher, when I, when I taught it at the, at the tech school, like I had to teach myself, what was it called? Animal husbandry or something like that, where I had to teach students how to take care of like mice and rats and hamsters. And I'm like, yeah, you're never going to, you're never going to use this. <laughs> yeah. But it, I, I agree. There, there definitely needs to be some, I don't know what the word is like veering off of, of pathways so that we can have, when you think about it, we're trying to specialize early on. I mean, there should also be a, a pathway for someone that wants to have all that stuff, wants to have large animal and small animal. Sure. Yeah. in their brain. But, but I think we should give them the option of, of saying, Hey, if you want to just go down this path, let's go down this, this path. Cause mm -hmm. we, we look at it as the small animal people. And I bet you there's large animal people that are like, why did I have to learn about cat vaccines? Because I'm never going to give them, I'm never going to use them. Yeah. Right. And, you know, you mentioned in there too, in terms of like being involved in rounds and just being part, you know, part of the collaboration, if you will. Mm -hmm. When, when I first started at my, my last job in academia, there was one technician that was designated 
uh, on second shift to go to DVM rounds, you know, for, for rounds on our service. And I think probably because of staffing and whatever that just kind of faded away not long after, but that person at least could communicate with the rest of us uh, on that shift, you know, kind of what the doctors were thinking and what have you. It wasn't that we all attended, but then the last couple of years I was there, there was no technician in, in rounds with the, the residents and, you know, faculty and that. And so it, it, there was a huge disconnect because so often it would come up that we knew something about the case that they didn't, yes. or they knew something about the case that we didn't. And, and again, I, unfortunately, I think it came down to just all of the factors that we know about, you know, too high of a caseload, too few of people, all of, all of those external factors. But it, it was, it, it became so glaringly obvious that something bad could happen because the communication breakdown. Right. Yeah. 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 Ugh. Anyway, we could go on a whole episode about that. Yeah. But, <laughs> but that's, that, that's, that's not why we're here. Um, so you, you've been, quite vocal on, on your personal Facebook page and, and such as a veterinary technician and dealing with chronic illness and how it's kind of affected your career and, and whatnot. So if you don't mind, just talk about that a little bit. We've got a few follow-up questions and we'll kind of jump off from there kind of, but like as detailed as you want to be or not, but you know, what you experience, but then we're going to talk about how that affects your career and jobs and all of that. Yeah, I am. Um you know, this kind of platform is something that's perfect for a safe space to talk about things. People who know me, my life is an open book. And if I can create something positive from any of the struggles that I've had, you know, that's absolutely worth it to me to share my personal experiences. And I think I'm learning more and more about people who have chronic illness in our profession and even my rheumatologist has said the number of people that I see that work in veterinary medicine is alarming. And, you know, whether it's the usage of chemical products for disinfectants, cleaning, whatever it might be, or all of the other biohazards that we come into contact with, it's not uncommon, not to mention the physical aspect of the job uh, that tends to way on people. But so I, uh, I started experiencing widespread inflammatory problems about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit before that and going through doctor after doctor, just being bounced around from various specialists, much like it is in our hospitals. Uh, when one team doesn't want to handle a patient, <laughs> they say, Oh, this isn't my problem. It's allergies. Oh, it's not allergies. Go to this doctor. So getting a diagnosis for me initially with fibromyalgia was a matter of excluding everything else. And the stress of going through that diagnostic process is overwhelming. And you take a hit mentally. It's, um, I was mourning and grieving the loss of the person that I was. Nobody thinks they're going to wake up one day and never feel well again. <laughs> That's just not how people think. But at this stage of the game where I already had a lengthy on and off immune disorder, where I would have flare ups, nobody knows what causes them more often than not. <laughs> but I did recognize after a period of time, it, it was 
typically after a very stressful week in the hospital setting um, with a large volume of patients and you know, perhaps leaning in the cages to clean a hundred cages every day, that kind of thing. But uh, through that diagnostic process, allowing myself to admit that I wasn't 100%, that was perhaps the hardest part. As a perfectionist, I think that many of us in the vet field kind of are that type A personality in emergency and critical care at the very least. So knowing that I wasn't able to give 100% every single day was stressful and caused a lot of anxiety for me. As I was managing all of my symptoms, I was absolutely open with my coworkers and management at my hospitals. And so we found various ways to sort of make things a bit easier for me. Um, but also keep the lines of communication open. And so then this year um, (laughs) decided to, I think, flip all of us the bird, but I got COVID right before Christmas, uh, the week of Christmas. And the struggles that came post-COVID were, it was not anything I was expecting as somebody who is double vaccinated and boosted and practice social distancing and so forth. What I found after I assumed I should be recovering from COVID <laughs> two weeks out, <laughs> debilitating headaches that just never stopped. I had loss of vision in one of my eyes off and on. My vision was very blurry. I was having cognitive problems. I was stumbling over my words. I was getting confused. I was forgetful, severe brain fog. And you might imagine somebody in my position teaching, speaking, and so forth. Like, that's the terrifying part. Yeah. Am I going to get back to where I was? Am I going to forget everything I ever learned? And so uh, it has been quite the process going through and figuring out exactly what was going on. And I'm, I'm happy to jump into that as well. Uh, so I think my, my first question, fibromyalgia, I know pain related. That's probably the extent of my knowledge. I can, I can kind of visualize how, you know, a generalized or, you know, unmanageable pain could be, how it could affect our work, but talk about Mm -hmm. that a little bit for, for you, what that looked like. So because it is a chronic illness that waxes and wanes, there could be periods of time where I have minimal symptoms. And then there are times when, you know, the difference between being tired and having fatigue, the fatigue would set in. And so it's not something that you can conquer. It's not you saying, suck it up, Danny, get out of bed. (laughs) It's physically impossible. And sometimes you're so surrounded by pain. It just feels like your whole body is wrapped in barbed wire. So those of us who have something like fibromyalgia, we will have good days. We could potentially have good weeks or months. And so sometimes it's for people that we work with to understand, Hey, I saw her, you know, performing CPR on a dog yesterday. Why is she look like she's, you know, dying in the corner today? (laughs) Well, I can tell you, I gave everything I had (laughs) and that's all I had. Um, So operating for me in this profession 
I have grasped onto the spoon theory. And just to share what that is, the spoon theory, a woman by the name of Christine Misserandino, uh, I think it was in early 2000s, devised this idea to kind of help us to explain to people what it is to have a chronic illness. And so if the average person quantifies or qualifies energy as a spoon, one single spoon, if you, the average person who is healthy has 12 spoons, if you start to take away a spoon for every single task you have to perform at the end of the day, you as a healthy person might have a couple of spoons left. So you can decide, hey, I'm going to use these two spoons on something else. So for example, one spoon would be taking your medication in the morning, something fairly simple, something that doesn't require a lot of energy. Moving up to two spoons would be taking a shower. Three spoons would be something a little bit more complicated, like going to the grocery store. Uh, Four spoons would be going to work and working all day. So those of us with chronic illness have less spoons than those who don't have chronic illness. So I have to choose wisely what I'm going to do in a given day so that I have enough spoons for the things that I deem as being important. Those things that I know I have a deadline for or something like that. And I try to make room in my life knowing I'm not going to be able to do X, Y, and Z later on if I have spent everything in the morning. Um, So compartmentalizing that way has helped me immensely with having chronic illness in the workplace. A a question that I have, Danny, is, you know, it it makes it sound like, and and correct me if I'm wrong, that this is kind of stress related. So if you're doing things that are stressful, it exacerbates it, or is that, is is that just kind of a disconnect? No, it absolutely can. It's different for everybody. People have felt as though there are environmental triggers as well. Like I mentioned, you know, if I'm working a heavy week where I'm, you know, working around a lot of cleaning products and so forth, I notice that, you know, I have a harder time, like I'm physically sore, I'm exhausted, I have brain fog um, and so forth. So there are different triggers for different people, but stress seems to be a common trigger for a flare up of fibromyalgia in particular. Gotcha. And I, I imagine that can be both physical stress and mental or emotional stress Absolutely. as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. you know, I know yeah. Dave and I have talked about this, you know, our, our introverted selves, when we go to IVEX, as much as we love to see all of our people by day three, day four, day five, or whatever it is, when we leave, like our battery is on empty. Like yes. we can't like can't wait to get back home and crawl back into my little cocoon. And, you know, yes. as much fun as, as I, and as much as I love to see everybody, I, I got to get away. Do you, mm-hmm. you kind of obviously on a different scale and in a different way, but do you kind of have that same almost yeah. response with this when you're done with that much output over those several days mm-hmm. as well? Yep. Because I know it will ultimately set me back. <laughs> so I can, you know, every year when I teaching the IVEX wet lab, for example, you know, we have to start the lab, getting everything together at 5am. I know that I'm going to be teaching until 5pm 
hands on, hands in dogs, <laughs> mm-hmm. full in. <laughs> I know that that day is going to be a lot of spoons. That's all the spoons I have for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and now it's a matter of gauging, okay, everyone is asking to go out socially you know, the night before, and that's going to take up some spoons too. I'm going to be tired. I'm going to be, you know, probably sore if we're out dancing or whatever. Um, So I have to decide, I have to choose wisely on, you know, how I'm going to spend those units of energy. Well, before we get into the next round of questions, why don't we take a little ad break here? We'll pay some bills and we'll be back after the break. The Vet Tech Cafe is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp Online Therapy will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist and you can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line and it's not self-help. It's professional therapy done securely online that's more affordable than traditional in-person therapy and financial aid is available. Caffeinators receive 10% off the first month using BetterHelp.com slash VetTechCafe. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, to join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist, and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. Don't take our word for it. Visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily at betterhelp.com reviews. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash reviews. If you want to take charge of your mental health, visit BetterHelp.com slash VetTechCafe and get started today and get 10% off your first month. Be well, caffeinators. All right. Welcome back, everybody, to the Vet Tech Cafe, where we hope your coffee is strong and your Mondays are short. So, Danny, what we like to ask after our BetterHelp ad is, how do you manage your mental health? I, I realize that all the stuff that you've gone through you know, with your physical health, that's got to be stressing, stressful on your, on your mental health as well. So how do you manage it? Therapy, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) lots of, lots of therapy and specialized therapy, honestly, has been very helpful for me. So, you know, yes, the physical aspect of it, there are therapists that specialize in such a thing. So, you know, uh, having a grief counselor, my mom and my brother-in-law last year. So I have different types of therapists that help me with different things. And then also just the uh, high stress portion of uh, wanting to be that 100% and not always feeling like I can get there. So for me personally, it was a matter of researching. Do I try to find one counselor that, you know, has all of these types of specialties under their belt, or do I seek out multiple different people? Um, And for me, I've been fortunate in finding a couple of counselors that, um, you know, specialize in these various things. So I think really taking a good hard look at yourself and figuring out what are the things that are causing your mental health to decline and how can you pinpoint and pull it apart so that you're working on each thing individually. Because for for me, things are overwhelming. If I think about uh, mental health as a, you know, an overall type thing, I I tend to kind of individualize it a little bit and that helps me a lot. Uh, It's weird to think that, you know, there's so many, there's so much specialization going on in the, in the medical field right now that it, it just follows suit that 
therapy is going to do the same thing where they're, they're going to parse off into the different different avenues that to give specialized care for for people like you and other people that are also dealing with like chronic illness and multiple mm-hmm. different types of issues. Yeah. Um, so let's circle back to COVID. What kind of issues did you have post-COVID? Um, you know, I, you mentioned some of the cognitive things and, and things like that, but I know recently that you've kind of switched career paths a little bit. So it, was that related to the, the COVID issues or, or was that a completely separate issue? So I had sort of been of the mindset over the past few years that I needed to transition off the floor of clinical practice. Being on the floor to train somebody for a couple of hours is one thing, but working a 12-hour shift in an ICU is not something that I'm capable of doing at this point. And so I also kind of realized that I can reach a far wider audience by teaching and training somebody something and having them go down the line and teach and train somebody and so forth. And also continuing to lecture at conferences where there are like-minded people and we can disperse a lot of information to a lot of different people. So it was a decision based on my physical health at the time to transition from being on the floor into more of a training role. And now, even in the past month or two, um, I had taken medical leave following my COVID and subsequent other uh, problems following it. And now I'm transitioning into mostly remote work um, and consulting, which is fantastic. And also going to hospitals and training their staff individually. So the, the physical portion that I had after COVID is something that I think we, I hear about all of the time now after I had COVID, uh, I was sick with COVID like symptoms for two weeks. It did not improve. And so I started, you know, with my primary care physician and blood work was all normal and so forth. Then was sent out for referral to a neurologist and several other specialists and ended up realizing the extreme gaslighting that goes on in the human medical field. And also in particular with women, I remember sitting in the neurologist office. This was, I had to wait four and a half weeks to get into the neurologist my headache never stopped and it wasn't a headache. You know, people are like, Oh yeah, I get headaches all the time. No, Mm, this was something very different. And uh, so I got in and I'll never forget the neurologist came in and he didn't even look at me really. He looked at my chart and he said, uh, Oh, I see what's going on here. We got over 40 and overweight. And I said, huh? That was when I knew (laughs) I had uh, a big hill to climb to get a diagnosis on what was wrong with me. So it was about um, advocating for myself and saying, you know, I'm I'm not crazy. Um, Every time I would present my symptoms, you know, for example, talking about the extreme headaches and the vision um, impairments, I was told to keep a headache journal and to write down when the headaches start and stop. And I remember saying to the neurologist, 
I can't write down when they start or stop because they started and they have never stopped. <laughs> so there's no starting again. I went through three neurologists and um, countless tests, spinal taps, MRIs, you name it, I had it. Ultimately went to a intracranial specialist uh, who manages severe headaches, uh, migraines in particular, which I had never had before in my life. And uh, ultimately was diagnosed with intracranial hypertension. And little did I know, and he was still learning about it, they've seen a big increase in this in patients who have had COVID. It's still unclear, like the mechanism of action, like what, what causes this, but the thought is that there might be changes to the vasculature and the permeability of it. And so, you know, the CSF that I have is just staying in my skull and kind of squeezing my brain. And so it's causing the cognitive problems. It's causing, it's putting pressure um, on my pituitary gland. So weight loss at this point is not happening despite being in a severe calorie deficit and exercise, all those things. So uh, it was an exhaustive process. And I know people that we work with on a daily basis, you know, you come into work after going to appointments like this, you don't want to tell everyone what's going on, but you, you do want them to know, Hey, I'm not a hundred percent, but here's the thing. I look fine, right? I don't, I don't look sick. And that's, that's the frustrating part when you have something that's so debilitating, but yet you don't have crutches, you don't have a cast on your arm, you, you know, you're not in a wheelchair, there's, there's not an obvious disability here. This in particular, if not treated could have caused a stroke, uh, could have caused seizures, could cause blindness, long term cognitive problems. And so, you know, just the exhaustion of the diagnostic process, and the stress of they could call me at any time and say, I have, you know, terminal cancer, <laughs> you know, there, there are those additional right. things that people with chronic illness worry about is when do I go to the doctor again? Is this something, or is this just my chronic nightmare? <laughs> and I'm fortunate that the medications that have been prescribed to me have almost completely knocked out 90% of my symptoms. My cognitive function is back. I'm remembering things. I'm not tripping over words. The fatigue is getting better. So um, that's huge. Headaches are one or two a week. You know, there's still inflammatory discomfort and pain for sure, but I'm used to handling that. I'm used to managing that. So, but the people that we work with, again, like we never know what people are going through at any given time. And knowing that I wanted to communicate to my team what was going on as somebody who doesn't have chronic illness, somebody who comes up to you and says, hey, I'm dealing with this. One of the most challenging things is for people to say it's okay and I'm sorry you're going through this and then walk away and not help you versus showing you with their actions that they genuinely care that you're not well and they believe you and it's not all in your head and not saying things like, you know, again, like, well, you don't look sick or 
you were fine yesterday. Those things can vary so much. So I've learned a lot about patient advocacy uh, throughout this whole process, <laughs> speaking up for yourself um, in particular, but you know what we do for our patients every single day, they don't have that voice. Um, and as uh, stressful as it is for us who actually have voices, I can't, you know, we know what our patients come up against. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For sure, for sure. The, the, the intracranial hypertension, is that in any way a result of or related to your pre-existing fibromyalgia or, or just completely nope. a post-COVID? Yes. Yep. And you can end up with IIH for a number of reasons. So the Obviously, the first eye is idiopathic. So um, this, at this point, with COVID being still new and long COVID, there are more and more studies are being done. But it's obviously going to take a while for those things to catch on. But this seems to be a primary problem with people who have had COVID, particularly women over forty. <laughs> And so there can be a number of other reasons that you can have this as well. I also have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a connective tissue disorder. So my dura is not as taut the average person. So I can leak CSF that way. But the odds are given the, you know, the time frame of how everything kind of went down and the fact that I'm responding to diuretic medications and migraine medications kind of all leads to more of an inflammatory response that doesn't enable me to absorb CSF normally. If the medications didn't work, the other option was a shunt. So brain surgery, obviously I've avoided that so far. (laughs) Um, I can't take these medications forever. They could damage my kidneys and so forth. So I have to be mindful of the stressors that I have on top of my illness. And again, another reason for me to kind of remove myself for now from that 12 hour clinical practice type shift and focus on spreading as much knowledge and education as I can. I want to be utilized. <laughs> That's what's yeah. going to, you know, continue to keep me uh, passionate about this, this profession that we're in. For sure. I, I actually also have Ehlers-Danlos. I have hypermobile oh. type. I'm double jointed and I think that's actually a big part of the reason the last couple of years I really struggled on the floor was a, my height and all of that yes. and, and being, excuse the phrase bent over pretty much <laughs> the, my entire work day um, yes. in, more, in more ways than one, I guess, but um, <laughs> you know, it just like, it, it's, it started to kill my knees, my back. Like I, I just physically really couldn't do it anymore, but yeah, it's, it, I'm really curious about, you know, coworker interaction. Like, did you, whether it be from, from coworkers or from management above, like, did you have struggles with people and in, in their interactions with you? Were they, you know, gaslighting you? Were they, did you experience those kinds of things a, a lot? Especially, you know, I, I imagine too, in the, in the period where you don't really have a diagnosis yet and you're get, trying to get this figured out and you just feel garbagey all the time and don't really know why you can't really explain it. We've said this, uh, we've had guests say this before, Dave, I think it was Emily that, that said, we eat our own. Mm, and, yeah. and I can see, frankly, years ago, I could see myself being kind of crappy to a coworker that was experiencing this. And that, is that something you went through? It was, um, it's a little different for me because I think I'm very much like a cat <laughs> in that I, when I'm not feeling well, I just sort of 
hide. I go into a corner to <laughs> go in the woods to die. Under um, the bed. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I stop eating the whole nine yards. But I I removed myself from my teammates more than they actively mm. removed me. We have a very robust HR department at our hospital that I just left about a month ago. And so the management portion of it was, you know, by the board, like they were very good about explaining FMLA to me, leave of absence and so forth. What you're not prepared for is what I was not prepared for is now I don't have a connection to those people in the building at all. And we were friendly with one another because we had to rely on each other, especially in emergency and critical care. Your teammates are your you know, extension of your hands and your brain. And so those connections that were in the building, I can't say extended out of the building after I went on medical leave much. And again, like, you know, I'm, I'm certain that for those friends who call or text over and over again and ask, do you want to go out? Do you want to do this or that? And I'm exhausted and physically feel like I can't. I imagine at some point they're like, oh, let's not bother calling her. She probably won't come out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, just like at IVEX, we know the certain people who are like, oh, he's been to dinner with us one night and out dancing one night. He's not coming out a third night. I feel like that's, that's us. That's yes. me, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's why I come and hunt you down. <laughs> yes, you do. Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, but I, I think that I isolated myself more than they isolated me. And they had genuine concern about my health and how they could help me. They were very sincere. They wouldn't just say, you know, oh, it's too bad that you don't feel well. It was, what are you lifting? No, no, put that down. I've got that. You know, go sit down, take your break, that kind of thing. So they showed me in their actions, not just their words, which, you know, was helpful mental health wise. Of course, when you're dealing with something physical, if, if you're in pain, you're also agitated, anxious, sometimes downright angry. Like I want the life that I had before I'm angry. And so you sometimes chronic illness makes you put up a bit of a wall. And so you kind of protect yourself. So they don't, they don't continue to call me. So that means I don't have to continue to say, I can't go out tonight. They're not mm. calling. Now that you're doing some remote work primarily. And I mean, obviously you've got a diagnosis and you're taking medication now and, and that, so that's probably improved things, but can you talk about how being off the floor and, you know, just not only physical stress, but, you know, just everything that kind of goes with that, how, now being remote is kind of helping out as well, or is it, or, you know, is it a noticeable difference in your overall health? Yeah, it's definitely a noticeable difference. Um, you know, the physical aspect for sure, but also the things that I didn't even realize I was just absorbing working in a busy, uh, ER ICU setting. And, you know, my, one of my neurologists said, you know, what is your work environment like? And I just laughed because I, I was like, 
there's no way there's no way to describe it i was like you know like how much time do you have i I was like you know when you see the monkey clanging the cymbals (laughs) like that's that's a normal level of sound for us so i played him a video that I had, I was taking a video of a patient in respiratory distress for teaching purposes. And I didn't even realize at the time, all of the noises that were going on. And at least five people walked by my camera while I was actively filming. And, you know, the pumps are going off, the ECGs, the phones are ringing, people are shouting across the room, dogs are barking, the bright lights. That's the other thing I didn't recognize. Um, When I went to the headache specialist, all the lights were off in his office. There were candles everywhere. There were signs (laughs) saying, don't wear strong perfume or cologne when you come in. And I didn't think about, oh my gosh, like that is exactly what I go into (laughs) to work every day. Mm -hmm. Loud, lots of smells, lots of chemicals, all sorts of things that are potential triggers for my symptoms. So leaning on to this, you know, remote type of work, I'm able to put in 100% when I'm physically able to do it and not have to push myself and maybe not do as great a job as I want to do if I'm in a difficult physical or mental state. So choosing when I get to do the remote work has been very helpful, but still being able to reach so many people. And now it's not just in my building. Now it's like all over the place, not just even the US, like, you know, the UK and Canada and stuff, you know, doing training stuff back and forth through, you know, Zoom and, and everything. Um, it's just, it's made me feel hopeful <laughs> that even though I've had this chronic situation for a long time, and then this uh, acute phase of my uh, health, I still know that there's plenty that I can do at this point. Um, that keeps me engaged and keeps me excited and keeps me wanting to motivate other people who struggle with their uh, physical health. And, you know, I want to make sure that I cover everything when it comes to being empathetic about chronic illness with your coworkers. I've learned so much, you know, the positives of having a chronic illness in this profession. I've learned so much about empathy and compassion. I've learned to appreciate the possibilities outside of hospital walls. I've learned so much about the human pet bond. My cats, we call them the get well gang. There's four of them. (laughs) They're almost always on my bed with me when I'm having a difficult physical day. And so for me, working with patients at this point, thinking about you know, we really have such a greater impact than what we see in an eight hour period. These animals have gotten me through so much, you know, mentally just being by my side. So there are many positives that have come out of all of this. And that's kind of what I choose to lean on. You know, there are just too many struggles in general in the vet profession that I'm choosing to take this and and do whatever I can to enlighten everyone and help those that are also struggling. Danny, before we start to wrap up here, because we're getting beyond our hour, <laughs> what advice would you give to a colleague or, or, or coworker that is dealing with either chronic illness 
or has been recently diagnosed with it, or maybe even not diagnosed yet? What, what advice would you give to them for how to manage it, how to deal with it, and how to how to stay in the field, I guess? I think the thing that sort of slapped me in the face and got me to realize that I was doing too much is when I recognized that as a leader, my team was then trying to do too much. So I would urge people who have chronic illness problems to take that break to, you know, go to the restroom when you need to, to take your water breaks, know that everyone is keeping an eye on you. And if I'm not doing it myself, they're not going to do it either. So I think it, it humbled me a little bit to think of it in that way that we sort of have a responsibility to, you know, take care of our health physically and mentally. And that means taking time for yourself. I would also suggest don't take things uh, at face value when a doctor tells you something, um, a human doctor, um, and you're, <laughs> you're feeling like it's not quite, uh, things aren't quite working out with that doctor, get a second opinion, get a third opinion, those types of things that we historically as technicians, I think tend to keep our mouth shut. If a doctor says something, we're like, Oh, that's gotta be it. Yep. They've gotta be right. I'm not as smart as they are, but listen to your body and, you know, get the care that you need, whether it's physical or mental and, and don't stop until you get answers. It's nine times out of 10. It's not all in your head. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned that. <laughs> Is there anything we haven't covered, you know, about this topic and about your experiences with, with chronic illness in our field that we haven't covered yet today that you want to get out to our listeners? Anything else? Yeah, I, I think that um, it's important for people with chronic illness to recognize that they contribute a whole lot more than they think that they do. When I was physically unable, I had spinal surgery a couple of years ago now. When I wasn't physically able to do the job, I remember being so hard on myself. And I remember thinking I was just it was just annoying to have me around because here I am in the building, but I have a neck brace on. I can't even touch patients. Right. And then I realized, oh, the criticalist says to me, uh, I don't care if you just sit there and teach people as you're sitting there. You know, there's so many things that we can do. We don't think about beyond our physical limitations sometimes. And so, you know, embrace what you can do. I think that will help in terms of, you know, self-worth and feeling like you're doing a good job regardless of what you can contribute physically to your job. Is there anybody in particular or a topic that uh, you think we should cover or talk to on the Vet Tech Cafe? Hmm. I think it would be nice to have the assistant role highlighted more. I think that some of the challenges that we have with the assistant role, at least in the hospitals that I've worked in, is they get into the assistant role and are immediately thrown into more responsibilities than they should be, or they get very discouraged because they aren't able to do more. So I'd be interested in hearing from um, some vet assistants on career paths for them and, and what they see in terms of future for them. And is it all about, I'm going to be an assistant for six months and then I plan on being a technician? 
I think so, that would help us in terms of, um, you know, kind of staffing appropriately as well. They're often forgotten as, as a vital role of the, yeah. like, I mean, the three of us, how many, how many times have we relied on an assistant to help us do our job oh without gosh, yeah. like even acknowledging the fact that, Oh yes, that it's, it, this is an essential role in, in the, in the hospital. Yeah. All right, Danny. So we're down to your final question. This is your vet tech cafe. Would you rather question? Excellent. Would you rather be sticky or itchy for the rest of your life? Oh my God. Sticky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know why? So growing up in Vermont and living in Massachusetts, my entire childhood was plagued by mosquito bites. Um, <laughs> maybe that's part of my problem. Um, but uh, yeah, so I even hear a mosquito buzz and I get anxiety. So I can't imagine being itchy all the time. But what about I'm not a fan. I'm not a f- yeah, I'm not a fan of being dirty in general, which is mm. hilarious being in this profession. <laughs> I don't like I, I won't touch anything without a glove. Anything. Right. right. But yeah, I would I would have to say, I guess I, I'd rather be sticky. Yeah. Mm. Dave, I mean, maybe what? I could wrap myself oh. in something cool and have it stick but, to me. Yeah, I think with I guess with with itchy, it's like a, a constant annoyance and sticky you can kind of I think sticky maybe you can kind of get used to it. Yeah, yeah. But itchy is just like you got to scratch. Relentless, yeah. Yeah, I, you I'd have to wear naked and afraid. No. Mm. Oh. Yeah. You Doesn't need, sound you... like something I want to watch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can assure you, they are constantly itching, and um, that is. Uh, <laughs> my husband and I talk all the time about that's what would send me home. It's not everything else. It would be the bug bites. And I, I would be remiss if people that that know me and, and were in the study group, if you didn't say naked and afraid and I said did not say sounds like my first time. Yes. <laughs> oh, I, I, I cannot sleep when I'm sticky. So mm. I and I I am a I was a geeky allergy kid. I, I was a kid that had a Kleenex box in my backpack everywhere I went. I always, even to this day, I'm itchy just from environmental allergies. And like, I'm always just kind of, you know, scratching here, scratching there. So uh, I, I would, I would take itchy. I, wow. I, I cannot, mm. I, huh. there, there are days like, so I'm in Southern California. It's a dry heat. We won't really have humidity here. Like if I go visit, you know, or when I lived in new England in the summer, I would take like three, four showers a day. I cannot stand to be sticky. So I, mm. I, I would take itchy. When I think with itchy, it sounds like you're already itchy all the time. Anyway, yeah, exactly. So it it's, it's like something <laughs> it's I'm not used a change to. For you. You have yeah, exactly. I, <laughs> I've already adapted. So, I mean, obviously it could be worse. Don't get me wrong, but um, yeah, that's, that's, yeah. So that's why I would, I would say that. Well, Danny, thank you very much for kind of opening up a little bit and talking to us about this, because again, we've had a few people write in and, and ask that we kind of do an episode about this. So thank you very much for, for not only telling your story, but giving probably way more people in our field a voice that maybe not, maybe otherwise don't have one that are probably battling this and whether it's been diagnosed and being treated or just not figured out yet, um, or realize their symptoms are of a chronic disease nature. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much for taking the time out to talk to us about it. It was really great to see you and hear, hear you again. And um, you too. We're, Thank we're you really so much for giving us this platform. 
I mean, I'm so incredibly proud of the two of you. You know, it's hmm. our AVECT family forever. No one yeah. left behind. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Even if I'm uh, chronically awesome, I know that <laughs> you will never leave me behind. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Well, caffeinators, uh, thank you very much for tuning in today. And um, one quick message again: if you have a coworker that's dealing with something like this, maybe help them out a little bit extra. Ask what you can do to to help out, or if they need anything, or be a little bit more supportive because they're going through something that if you're not dealing with this you probably can't comprehend. I know, I know I can't. So just extend a little extra kindness, if you will. So thanks again for tuning in. We'll talk to you guys later. Bye guys. Hello caffeinators. We wanted to thank dog days consulting for managing our social media and helping with the interior design here at the vet tech cafe. They don't just do social media. They can help you identify your brand through brand coaching. The founder is a CVPM with 15 years experience in veterinary practice management. They are a small business proudly serving the veterinary community and we are thrilled to be working with them. Check them out at www.dogdaysconsulting.com. Hey caffeinators, we would like to thank you for listening to the Vet Tech Cafe podcast today. As everybody is well aware by now, we often talk about difficult issues that face our profession. In addition, we chat with colleagues and leaders in our field who have strong opinions of these issues. Those opinions expressed by either Dave or Jeff as the hosts, or those opinions expressed by our guests, are their opinions alone and do not represent any other person, business, institution, or any other entity inside or outside of the scope of veterinary medicine. If you have any questions relating to this, please email us at vettechcafe.com at gmail.com or visit our website www.vettechcafe.com. Lastly, whatever platform you utilize to hear our dulcet tones, please rate and review our podcast and like and follow our Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn pages as well to see what we're up to. From all of us at the Vet Tech Cafe, have yourself a great day.